Welcome back to the Furs and Frontiers podcast. I'm your hostess, Tracy Walmer. Today we're going to talk about the rendezvous system and visit some of the events themselves. This is part one of a two-part episode. To fully understand this, though, let's review the general concept of the fur trade. This is the period of North American history that was all about obtaining beaver pelts in Canada and what would become America to ship to Europe to feed the hat fashion that was all the rage. Fur companies would hire men, called trappers, to travel the creeks and streams, lay out the traps, then go back and collect what they'd caught and brought in. Trappers generally had to fund their own supplies, and these would be picked up at the trading posts when they cashed in their piles of pelts. At least that's the normal way prior to 1825. There was one rendezvous-style gathering prior to this in 1819, by a man named Donald McKenzie of the Northwest Company. But it was an isolated event, and we're not counting that as part of this new system. So please also note that the trading post system did continue to exist for many, many years afterwards. In 1822, two enterprising businessmen named William Henry Ashley and Andrew Henry struck on an idea. Rather than have the trappers stop working and come into the trading posts, they would take the trading post to the trappers. This accomplished a few things. It cut down on their employees' travel time, it gave their employees a period of rest and relaxation, and it gave their employees more time to open up new trapping territories. It also gave the company owner the chance to mark up the supplies a bit and make more profit. Since those supplies were purchased from Ashley and Henry's other businesses, this would make the two men rich really quick. Now, the word rendezvous is a French term meaning a meeting at an agreed time and place. And the concept is simple. A supply train of pack animals would leave St. Louis, Missouri, laden down with trade goods, and arrive at a predetermined location somewhere around July 1st. The trappers would plan to be at that rendezvous location before that day. The supplies and trade goods would then be swapped for the beaver pelts that the trappers brought into the rendezvous. And those furs would then be loaded back onto the now empty pack animals, and this fur-laden train would return to St. Louis while the trappers enjoyed the rest of their little mini-vacation. A week later, or sometimes three or four or six weeks later, depending on how much fun they were having, the trappers would head back into the wilderness to work. Now, the concept is simple. The logistics are not. At first, Ashley's Hundred, as his men were called, had difficulties getting a foothold on prime beaver land because of the stiff competition of bigger, more established fur companies. So Ashley sent his scouting parties out west to find better grounds. And what his scouting parties found were the Rocky Mountains and the rich valleys around them. So by 1825, Ashley's ready to take his first supply train to these new lands. A year earlier, after a particularly hellish trip, Andrew Henry had decided he was too old for all this hard work, and he retired back to his quiet little bullet-making business. Henry sold his part of the company out to one Jedediah Smith, who was an upcoming employee of Ashley's 100. We'll talk a lot more about him in a dedicated episode. But thanks to William Henry Ashley being a prolific journal writer, we can actually retrace his steps on the way to the first event in 1825. 
He tells us the weather every day, the best camping sites. He tells us of the good times they had and the bad. And then he uses that same journal to catalog his inventory as well as track his sales. I'll put a link on the website for you to read this for yourself. It's an amazing look into the lives of these men. So from all this journaling, we know just how that first trip went. He left St. Louis on Thursday, March 25, 1825, fully loaded with 110 mules. Their destination was the Green River Valley, over 1,200 miles away in Mexico Territory, which is today called McKinnon, Wyoming. Note that I said Mexico Territory because Mexico still held all of the Rocky Mountains, all of this land, at this point in time. The event was held at a place called Henry's Fork, near the confluences of Burnt Fork and Burnt Creek. It wasn't supposed to be, though. It was supposed to be held in the Green River Valley 40 miles north, but the trappers felt there was better grazing space for their animals, so they set up camp at Henry's Fork before Ashley got there to tell them otherwise. This trek that Ashley made is a distance of about 1,250 miles, and if an experienced hiker were to do it today, keeping in mind they'd be using paved roads, street signs, and rest stops for resupplying, it can be done in about 18 hours total. So let's see how long it takes 110 stubborn mules, 95 inexperienced men, and one man with a plan to get across this rugged terrain. During the trip, Ashley fell off a cliff and laid himself up for three days until he could move again. The company came under attack from hostile natives a few times, and at one point on April 2nd, just a week or so into this trip, he had 17 horses stolen out from under him by the Crow Indians, and he had to spend time recapturing what he could and repacking what he had left. He also had at least one man killed in a raid by an unknown band of natives. But he finally arrived at Henry's Fork on June 29th, three months and four days after he left Missouri. Some of his trappers were still out in the mountains, so he held off opening up the trading until they came in on the 1st of July. Ashley was a military man, and he was very serious about making sure all of his men had what they needed for the rest of the year. According to Ashley's journal, Approximately 120 trappers were at this first rendezvous, including 29 men who had deserted from Hudson's Bay Company, 13 men from Etienne Provost's Independent Fur Company, a few free trappers, and then the balance would be his own employees. And though the numbers are unknown, some sources estimate that several hundred natives of various friendly tribes also camped in 1825. I can imagine how excited these trappers were to see that wagon train. Many of them had run low on supplies weeks earlier, and after months up to their knees in swamp water and biting flies, I can imagine they were ready to kick back and relax. Ashley tells us that the supplies went quickly. So quickly, in fact, that he was loaded up with the furs and back on the road to St. Louis the next day. He was known to have made several lamentations that he should have taken alcohol with him because he could have made a fortune. And a note here to you ardent historians, Ashley himself says that he regretted not having brought alcohol, but in Jim Beckworth's journal, he says that the booze was flowing freely. Since Jim Beckworth is very literally known for telling tall tales and getting his dates mixed up, it is very likely that there was no alcohol at this event unless the trappers made their own, which is totally possible. 
Either way, the trappers spent the rest of the week hanging out with their compatriots, enjoying card games, shooting competitions, knife and tomahawk throwing, and horse racing, and a good time was had by all. Now, there's a common misconception that every rendezvous is this month-long scene of drunkenness and debauchery, and I once heard it said that it was an anything-goes atmosphere. Yes, there were a few guys, likely, who were out of control. We all know someone like that today. But for the most part, there were strict rules in camp, and most of the trappers observed them very closely. For example, guns were never permitted to be discharged in camp unless you were under siege by hostile natives. And we know that they took these rules very seriously, because years later, when a pack of rabid wolves came into camp and bit 12 men, no one dared to shoot them because they feared the repercussions from Ashley. So we know they adhered to the, the regulations that Ashley dictated. We also know that the veteran trappers kept tabs on the new recruits. Many of them mentored these new guys in various ways. An example of this would be the man named Green, who taught a young Joe Meek how to read and write, just so he could read the Bible that was floating around camp. And when they wanted to have a competition for best shot bragging rights, it's written that it was a well-controlled contest in an area designated by the man in charge of the camp. Now here we're going to learn a new vocab word. Ashley and Smith might have owned the company, but Ashley spent most of his time in St. Louis, and Jedediah Smith was in charge when he was in the mountains, but he couldn't be in all places at one time. So Ashley set up a system of authority partially because he was a brigadier general with the Missouri militia and it was in his nature, but partially because these men were assets and he couldn't afford to have his employees getting hurt or worse. Now, the man in charge of everything was called the bourgeois. In this case, it's Jedediah Smith. He had a second in command, often nicknamed the little bourgeois or the second man. And this was most often a well-paid officer. While the bourgeois was responsible for checking the paperwork and the general order of things, and was also the final authority in all matters, the second man was the guy doing the inspections of the horses and the equipment and keeping all these trappers in line. The second man was a sergeant-at-arms, so to speak, ultimately responsible for every aspect of keeping a safe and productive camp. You can bet this guy knew the rules inside and out, and reminded anyone who needed reminding. Now there's another myth that these unshaven, unbathed, illiterate, wild-haired, sick-starved men would come stumbling out of the mountains and start eyeing up to pretty little native girls. This isn't true at all. Again, we all know someone back home who would go out with someone and go home on the first date, but generally that isn't how it went down back then. Many of these trappers were married to native women who were there with them, and even had their children at these events. There were occasions where native women actually married the mountain men at the rendezvous. As for their hygiene habits and appearances, we'll discuss that in a future podcast. Generally, they did only own one set of clothes, and bathing was not necessarily considered important. They also spent all day dealing with something called castorium, which was used as bait. It's the scent that comes from the beaver's anal glands, and that stuff is really potent. So I would think that they did smell rather bad. But we do know that they were expected to behave like gentlemen in the presence of ladies, even native ladies. 
In fact, in later years, when tourists and frontier travelers start attending these events, the ladies report that they're treated with the utmost courtesy, and even looked at in awe by some. In the case of certain men, like Jedediah Smith, some of them were deeply pious men, and were more likely to be sitting somewhere reading their Bible than creating havoc in camp. In fact, Jed was well known for sitting slightly away from camp, meditating and praying. And we know from various journals that there were always two books floating around camp, the Bible and the works of Shakespeare. This next myth that we're going to bust here is a big one. All mountain men spent their days in the solitude of the mountains and only came to see their friends once a year at the rendezvous. To explain why this is false, I'm going to have to explain the difference between the mountain men. You see, for companies like Hudson's Bay Company, the trappers were employees. Think of it like working for a corporation, except you have to buy your own uniforms and your office supplies from your boss. These men were paid by the company that they worked for. In return, they forked over all of the furs they acquired throughout the year and then bought their supplies from that same company. These companies often gave the men the startup gear they needed on a credit account. So at the end of the year, when it was paycheck time, they would have all those charges from that credit account deducted from their pay. Sometimes they were actually still in debt after their entire paycheck had disappeared. These employees would go out in groups with other employees to various locations determined by the bourgeois, somewhere between 20 to 100 men strong. Those groups would split up into smaller groups and split up again as they neared the trapping grounds. And they may split up again and again down to groups of two or five or ten guys, depending on the beaver populations and the terrain. They would bring in their hauls, and then the trappers would have to process the furs by drying them to get them ready to turn into the company clerk. They would then restock their supplies, again, put on their credit tab. For Ashley's rendezvous concept, think of it like an employee stock ownership program. The trappers would go out as one large company. They would split up until there was two, five, or ten guys in an area. They would do their trapping and then bring in their catch and hand it right to the company clerk. Ashley paid them $100 to $200 a year, then restocked their supplies for free, and only charged them for the non-essential items like pretty fabrics for their wives. Ashley also let the trappers keep half of whatever they caught. The only caveat was they had to sell them to him. Another change that Ashley implemented was to free up more time for the trappers with men called camp keepers. These guys would take the hides and process them so that the trappers could get back out and get some more. Camp keepers were often first-year employees, and they also were responsible for the care of two or three specified pack horses, plus their own, plus processing the hides, plus guard duty, plus all the other menial chores that needed to be done. The trapper was only responsible for his own horse, as well as the two or three pack horses assigned to him, but he didn't have to cook the meals for camp. He didn't have to do chores. The sole purpose of the fur trapper was to go out and come back with more beaver pelts. Then you have free trappers. This is that solitary guy in the wilderness that most people think of when you say mountain man. A free trapper has no loyalty to any company. He's not an employee. Think of him as being self-employed. He can trade his furs to any company he likes, but he must do all the work himself, and he must pay all of his own expenses. 
And while he might hang out with one or two other free trappers or a native wife, he's generally alone in the wilderness. This is before cell phones and dialing 911. There were more than a few times that free trappers died in those deep, dark forests because they lacked the security of working on a team. And years down the road, when beavers are getting scarce and the competition is getting tight, they won't have the backing of a big company to cover their losses. They're also stuck between competing companies who are demanding their loyalty or else. So that's the difference between the trappers. At a rendezvous, it was normal to see men of competing companies and free trappers camped with Ashley's employees. As far as Ashley was concerned, a beaver is a beaver is a beaver. He didn't care who brought it to him. And generally, Ashley's prices for the pelts were slightly above average. At a trading post, a trapper might sell his fur for $2 to $5 a pound, depending on the quality, whereas Ashley's paying $5 a pound to non-employees and 2 to 3 per pound for those on his payroll. But he also gave the employees free supplies, so it balanced out. A beaver pelt is usually two to three pounds a piece. So a man with, say, 50 pelts, that's 100 pounds of beaver. He could earn in one season what it would take him three years to earn back east. And because he had a corner on the market in the middle of nowhere, Ashley was able to raise his prices on his goods that were being traded out, where a pound of black powder in St. Louis would cost a buck fifty. Ashley could charge two fifty. And a pound of coffee in St. Louis was $1.50, and Ashley charged $2 at the event. Now, keep in mind, it took him four months and a lot of misery to pack mule it out there. And he would have had to travel four months to get back home. So it does make sense that he would have had transport expenses to cover and would have raised his prices some anyways. But without a doubt, William Henry Ashley certainly reaped the rewards. On July 2nd, 1825, they loaded 45 packs of beaver fur onto their animals. Each pack is almost 100 pounds dry weight of pelts. So when Ashley gets those packs back to St. Louis, they're estimated to be valued at $50,000. To put that in perspective for you today, the equivalent would be $1.5 million. We have a journal entry from for Trapper Jim Beckworth, and again, I caution that... He was prone to exaggerate, but his statement can actually be seen on the official historical location marker on State Highway 414 near Birch Creek Road in McKinnon, Wyoming. It reads, when all had come in, he, meaning Ashley, opened his goods and there was a general jubilee. We constituted quite a little town, numbering at least 800 souls. Half were women and children. He goes on to say, there were some who had not seen any groceries, such as coffee, sugar, etc., for several months. The whiskey went off as freely as water, even at the exorbitant price that he sold it for. All kinds of sports were indulged in, with a heartiness that would astonish civilized societies. There are two other journal entries in Ashley's book that I'd like to bring to you. Remember that he opened for business on July 1st. He packed up and left on July 2nd, fully loaded, headed back to Missouri. On the evening of July 2nd, he had split his pack train into two for the long ride home, and his group were attacked by 60 Blackfoot Indians who chased off all of his horses except two. He sent a rider to the other group, and they came with more horses and saved the day. On July 3rd, 
The next day, he was attacked again just before midnight, and this time Ashley's men fought off the marauders. But that's how he started his four-month journey home. Now, after the festivities die down, the men would then pack up camp and head back into beaver country. And this was quite an undertaking. It started about 4 a.m., and the bourgeois would holler through camp to get these men moving. The horses and mules would be checked for injury or weakness. The cooks and the camp keepers would be packing up lodges and kitchenware. And the trappers would pack up their own gear, their traps, and any new supplies they had acquired. Then a long train of animals and men would snake out across the countryside, sometimes up to a mile long. The bourgeois would ride in front with a sturdy, dependable mule next to him carrying all of the accounting ledgers, the trapper's contracts, and any important books. He was followed by the pack animals hauling the camp gear. For every two or three animals, there's one camp keeper to tend to them. Each pack animal would be carrying three chests, one on each side and one strapped on top. Now riding behind them would be the trappers and their families. Women and children were always on horseback, and each trapper had at least two horses carrying his family's gear. And then the second man would be the last guy in line to make sure there's no stragglers or incidences. When the bourgeois was satisfied with a new location, the whole camp would be set up again. It wasn't uncommon for these trappers to exhaust the beaver in an area within a week's time, or in some cases, a few days' time. So this camp was constantly being set up and taken down to move to the next location. Once the snow starts piling up, the men would be led to a sheltered valley to set up a winter camp. These lodges were set up again, this time with brand new buffalo hides, and they would remain set up for two or three months. It was usually four trappers and two camp keepers to each lodge. And the journals tell us that the lodges were made of buffalo hides stretched over saplings, while the bourgeois and the second man had canvas tents. In some years, the animals actually began to suffer due to a lack of grazing because the snow was so deep. So to counter this, the bourgeois would try to find valleys that were loaded with sweet cottonwood trees. The trappers and camp keepers would gather these smooth branches and then they would shave the bark off for their animals to eat to survive the winter. Very often, winter camp was a place for the trappers to rest and to see to any domestic crafts that needed done. The hides from the previous year lodges were often cut up and turned into new moccasins and new hides over the winter. And the reason that they did it this way is simply brilliant. For anyone who's never worn moccasins, they're made of hides, which are animal skins. Skin expands when it gets wet, and it shrinks as it dries. This is partially why your fingers prune after being in water for too long. This is also the reason that putting your moccasins away wet is a bad idea because they will be smaller when you go to put them on again. If your moccasins get wet, you should wear them until they're dry so that they fit properly. So these poor guys are standing in water pretty much all day because that's where the beaver live. And in many cases, they would come back to camp, tend to their horses, eat their dinner, and pass out for the night, still fully dressed. There are journal entries that tell us that in the morning, the trappers would rush out of their lodges seeking a water source to stand in so that their moccasins would expand and stop vice gripping their feet. Now, once leather's properly smoked, it won't contract as much. 
So the old lodge hides that were smoked from the fires inside these lodges would be cut up for new shoes. And having the new hides stretch for the winter meant that in the following season, everyone would have new fully smoked leather to work with. It was absolutely brilliant. And very often, a winter camp was shared with one of the friendly local tribes. The Crow were known to set up in the Green River Valley area with these trappers. And it was probably low-key compared to a rendezvous, but it meant good company for the long cold nights. In the meantime, Ashley would no sooner return to St. Louis with his precious cargo of furs than he had to start collecting supplies all over again. Over the winter months, he's brokering deals and he's making arrangements necessary for the 1826 rendezvous in the south end of Willow Valley. This is a place that the mountain men called Cache Valley. Ashley likely journaled everything for every year that he was in business, but most of those books are lost in time. In fact, it wasn't until 2014 that his 1826 journal was rediscovered in the possession of one of his clerk's descendants. In it, he journals that it took 78 days to travel the 1,335 miles to reach Cache Valley with a supply train. He had more than 90 new recruits, including one young guy named Hiram Scott, who we will see again shortly. We know that event started on the 2nd or 3rd of July. He traded for a week, and we know that Ashley left around the 15th of July. On the other hand, the trappers were having such a good time, the rendezvous itself lasted nearly two months. We don't really know how many were in attendance, unfortunately. In the four or five journal entries we have from the various trappers, no one mentions it. What they are talking about is the ridiculously high supply prices that Ashley is charging, and the really cool cannon that was brought along with the supply train, and how they got to fire it in celebration when they discovered that Jedediah Smith wasn't actually dead. You see, Jed Smith had been missing for some time, and when they found that he hadn't arrived at the event, they wrote him off as being dead. As it was, he and two other trappers were desperately trying to get across the desert in the Great Basin without dying, and their arrival at Cache Valley in mostly one piece was what everyone wanted to write about. And apparently, it was quite the celebration. I have a Jedediah Smith episode coming soon. According to Ashley's journal, he paid $3 a pound to his employees and $5 a pound to outsiders. In total, he brought in 9,000 pounds of fur at a value of $60,000, roughly equivalent to $1.8 million today. To give you a different perspective on this amount of money, let's look at the other headlines around the world. In Glasgow, 20,000 people are unemployed out of a population of 147,000. Yellow fever was raging through the world, and the population of Mexico was hit so hard that the Mexican government was offering $100,000 to anyone who could find a cure. That's almost $3 million today. Times were generally tough all over the place, and Ashley just raked in 15,000 times the average annual earnings. That is how well things are going. Another headline from this year had nothing to do with the rendezvous, but I thought you history mongers might appreciate it. On July 4th, 1826, while our intrepid trappers are partying in the Cache Valley, Thomas Jefferson dies at 12.30 in the afternoon in Monticello, Virginia. And hundreds of miles away in Quincy, Massachusetts, 
John Adams lay dying in his bed. His final words to his aide were, thank goodness Jefferson still lives. He died at 5.30 that night. Two of the great men who are instrumental in declaring our independence died on Independence Day. That's so cool. So back to the rendezvous. At this point, Ashley's had enough. He sells his stock to two of his employees named William Sublet and David Jackson. Now, he agrees to continue supplying the trade goods and to continue brokering the furs, but someone else is going to have to deal with this traveling back and forth to St. Louis because at this point, he's retiring. So it's at this point that the company is renamed Smith, Jackson, and Sublette Firm. Now, the following year, William Sublette left St. Louis with a supply train on April 12, 1827, destined for Sweet Lake, which is sometimes called Bear Lake, near present-day Lake Town, Utah. With Sublette is a man named Hiram Scott and 46 new recruits. The supply train must travel 1,295 miles, hauling a cannon on a two-wheeled cart. This would be the first set of wheels across the South Pass of the Oregon Trail. Knowing Sublette would meet them on the 1st of July, the trappers came in from the mountains early and they started setting up camp around mid-June. I guess they were eager to get the party started. Several of them were caught off guard when a band of Blackfoot Indians attacked the camp. Now, according to trapper Daniel Potts' journal, there were 20 Blackfoot warriors and no death. According to our famously exaggerating friend Jim Beckworth, there were 300 trappers and their native allies, hundreds of Blackfoot. The battle raged for six hours, and the mountain men took 173 Blackfoot scalps to decorate their lodges with. I told you, he's a bit of an embellisher. According to Ashley's records, Sublette hauled in $22,447 worth of supplies, which today is about $668,000 worth, along with this four-pounder wheeled cannon. Also accompanying the supply were new recruits. Smith, Jackson, and Sublette had agreed that this stock ownership program was not paying off enough in profits, and the new recruits were now paid a flat rate of $110 for a year's worth of work. So to put this in perspective, they're making $110 a year to be in the wilderness trying not to die, trying to get in as much as they possibly can in a short amount of time. A school teacher in Boston at this time is making $110 a year, and she gets to sleep in a nice comfy bed. A skilled carpenter in Philly is making about $95 a year. So the pay rate is coming down, and to counter Ashley's price increases, the cost of the trade goods went up considerably. Smith, Jackson, and Sublette also lowered what they were paying for the beaver to $3 a pound. Now, there's no record that I could find on how much they hauled in or what its value was, but there were plenty of journal entries grumbling about the prices of things and how cheap these three guys were. So we know that William Sublette arrived on the 3rd of July in 1827, and he left on the 13th. William Sublette arrived in Lexington, Missouri around October 1st, but again, we have no record of what the value of those furs were. While he's there, he decided to get a jump on the next year, so he bought out all the trade goods he could find, roughly $20,000 worth, and heads back to the mountains. The problem with doing this is that by the time the 1828 rendezvous came around on July 1st on Bear Lake, 
most of the supplies were gone. That didn't stop the trappers from coming, and once again they encountered problems with the Blackfoot Indians. A trapper inscribed for Smith, Jackson, and Sublette named Robert Campbell was heading in with his group of trappers when the natives attacked. William Ashley tells us that 200 to 300 Blackfoot attacked this group within miles of the rendezvous location. He said that 60 to 70 trappers and an untold number of their native allies came pouring out of the rendezvous site in time to save the day. Since there was no supply train to trade with, the men began trading with each other, as well as a man named Joshua Pilcher who owned the Missouri Fur Company. He had been resupplied by the American Fur Company some months earlier, and he had cashed his trade goods. Though he did lose some of the goods to water seeping into the cash, he managed to trade for 17 packs of beaver with the supplies he had left. Once that trading was finished, the trappers began fading back into the mountain by mid-July. The absence of a supply train also posed a problem for the return trip for Smith, Jackson, and Sublette because there were no pack animals to get those furs back to St. Louis. We're never told how they pulled it off. It's possible that they bought horses from local natives. But we know that the furs left the Rockies on August 1st, 1828 and arrived back in St. Louis at the end of October. William Sublette, Hiram Scott, and several others were in that train headed back to St. Louis when Hiram Scott suddenly falls ill, and they abandoned him. Now, at this point, the story gets grander each time it's told. One account says two men put him in a boat to make it easier to transport him and then just abandoned him on the side of a creek without looking back. His skeleton was supposedly found on the opposite side of the creek, still in the boat, mind you, some ways downstream and it's assumed that he paddled himself there before he died. Another account says he was abandoned at Laramie Fork and was found 40 miles away, having crawled after his group. And yet another account says he crawled 65, and then another says he crawled 100 miles to get to his party. Either way, his body was found three years later, near present-day Scotts Bluff, Nebraska. We've now covered the Rocky Mountain Fur Company rendezvous from its inception in 1822 to the first event in 1825 to 1828 when the new owners, Smith, Jackson, and Sublette, are still trying to work out the logistics of everything. When we come back, we'll talk about the double rendezvous year of 1829, and we'll look at how that industry is changing. My name is Tracy Walmer, and I thank you all for joining me for this episode. Don't forget to check the website at fursandfrontiers.com for great links and historical resources, as well as other podcasts. Please leave me a comment for any suggestions for future episodes. Have a great weekend, everybody, and keep your powder dry. Mm-hmm.